Welcome to Creative Place, the podcast for creative placemakers. I'm your host, Andrea Orlando. Art can elicit strong emotions, but what happens when a museum contemplates installing a work that might scrape at the scabs of historic wounds? This episode recounts the story of the Mississippi Museum of Art, which installed an exhibit entitled White Gold, an immersive visual work that evokes being in a cotton field. We interviewed Betsy Bradley and Monique Davis of the museum at the 2019 South and Appalachian Creative Placemaking Leadership Summit, where they led a workshop based on their experience of preparing the staff and meeting with community members in advance of the installation. to taught a session entitled Responding to Provocative Art. It's based on your experience at the Mississippi Museum of Art, which presented an exhibit entitled White Gold by Thomas Sayer. Let's set the scene by talking about that exhibit, what is it, and why did the museum choose it? So we'll start with you, Betsy. Okay. Well, the museum was in the midst of a multi-year planning process uh, to mount an exhibition that would commemorate the 200th anniversary of Mississippi statehood. And we were planning this exhibition to honor as well the opening of two new history museums, the most exciting of which maybe I should say was the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum, which is the first state-supported civil rights museum in the country. So we wanted to offer a visual counterpoint to the history museums. During the planning process, a person I admire very much came to me and told me he had seen an exhibition that was the most moving exhibition he'd ever seen in an art museum. And I grew up in the same community in Mississippi as this person, and it was a place it is, it's a community in the Mississippi Delta, which was known for its rich alluvial soil. It's kind of not at the mouth of the river, but it's between Memphis, Tennessee and Vicksburg, Mississippi. And it's a very agricultural place, a place where there was a lot of wealth because of the cotton industry and economy. And this exhibition was about cotton. It was, it is, a contemporary artist immersive installation. It's a fairly abstracted experience. You walk into a very dark room and on three walls, the wall in front of you and on either side, are various kind of perspectives, a cotton field. So one has the numerous rows of cotton field that kind of, that go out into infinity. The artist said there were 10,000 bowls of cotton in that particular mural and the mural facing it is a more upfront inside the cotton field perspective where you see closely the plant itself and the, the thorns on the base of the plant um, in front of you is a mural of slats that are like barn uh, 
walls so it feels like you're looking into the inside of a barn and then around your feet are earth cast sculptures that demonstrate the kind of the, the earth beneath you in uh, a cotton field my thinking at the time was that this was an opportunity for us to give the visitor an experience that was immersive, emotional, ref a reflective space instead of the kind of intellectual experience you have going through a fairly chronological installation of art. I also knew that the iconic imagery of cotton, whether a cotton bowl or a field, had really touched the lives of every Mississippian and every person that would probably walk through those galleries. I knew that those experiences were on two complete different sides of a spectrum and every, every place in the continuum in between. So I knew that it would be emotional in positive and negative ways, but I didn't really think through what that meant before saying, yes, we're going to end our very traditional exhibition with this more contemporary immersive experience. So I made the decision really without consulting my staff and certainly without consulting the community, which of course is always a mistake. And as things heated up in the art museum world at the same time that I had made this decision, which was about five to six months before the exhibition opened, I realized that if we didn't do some very serious work before the exhibition got to Mississippi, we could be facing a situation where our community didn't just talk with us. Their form of conversation with us might be protest or social media viral activity. And so that's when I did take a step back and consulted the staff, and it's when our colleague, Monique, made the very brave choice to, to tell something, a story about her family's experience with cotton that was really a transformational moment for our entire staff. So that's a great segue into my next question. Monique, I, I was there in the session with you, and you sh shared a very powerful, personal story about your family history with us, and um, thank you for doing that. And I was wondering if you could share that story with our listeners as well. I'd be happy to. Um, I just want to also give some context, historical context to the story because it was maybe in 2017, so we were just coming after, in addition to the conflict at the Whitney Museum and conversations that were created from that, we were also on the backs of Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were having conversations and tensions were kind of at a high point at that point, and so this is also coming out of, from that. And I had just come from a artist retreat with a bunch of um, progressives in the hills of um, Asheville, North Carolina for Alternate Roots, which is an organization that serves at the intersection of arts and social justice. And so we were having conversations about reckoning with this interesting, troubled, complicated history. Yeah. Okay. So I'll just start. 
I am the great-great-great-granddaughter of Alpha Peters, a slave who was raped by my great-great-great-grandfather, Frederick Foxworth, in Foxworth, Mississippi. Frederick Foxworth was a wealthy landowner and an immigrant from Holland. The child of that rape, Emmanuel Foxworth, my great-great-grandfather, was freed by his father and given an acre of land. He grew his land holdings to over 1,800 acres and owned a sawmill. In the 1890s, the white leadership in the town decided he had too much power for a free black man and created fraudulent documents stating that he had unpaid debts. They seized the land in Foxworth, Mississippi. Emmanuel, his wife Evelina, and their 11 children were forcibly removed from their land and fled to the Delta where Emmanuel had to share crop cotton and rent land when he once owned over a thousand acres. He is buried in an unmarked grave. In 2005, my Chicago relatives decide to retire and return to Foxworth, Mississippi, where they had to buy back the land they rightfully owned. We are still pursuing that legal battle. This history is similar to the history of many people in this room and the Jackson African American community. This is a shared history Cotton is not and never can be neutral in the United States of America. Assigning value slash gold to something that symbolizes violence, brutality, rape, and death is problematic. When we say white gold, it sends a dog whistle signal that we agree with the values of neo-Nazis, the KKK, and other white nationalist organizations. These groups are emboldened and they are here. Words matter. So the exhibit is coming, the contract is signed. The question is, how do we develop programming that creates safe spaces literally and figuratively? There are professionals doing this work and many attended the Alternate Roots annual meeting. I'm willing to share my network and resources to support creating appropriate, thoughtful programming. One solution is to provide critical response training to the staff and this is a process that's over 20 years old and developed by Liz Lerman as a constructive way to provide feedback and reactions to theater and dance productions. This practice could also be used for visual arts. This tool along with story circles helps participants see their shared humanity through common themes that connect and build bridges of understanding that is not based on guilt or shaming people. We need to be on the right side of history. We need to acknowledge our role and responsibility in creating brave spaces for these conversations. We need to be serious about equipping ourselves with the appropriate tools and developing the emotional intelligence to have these conversations. Let's ask ourselves and reflect, whose feelings are we protecting? Are we the museum where white nationalists can be comforted by neutral images of cotton and earth? Are we the museum where our African-American citizens are asked to be in a space that displays a symbol of their ancestors' back-breaking, soul-crushing, unpaid labor? Do we recognize and acknowledge that black people view cotton with the same level of pain and trauma that Jewish people view the swastika? Or as Betsy commented after her sabbatical, are we going to be authentic, honest, dive deep, and name one of the original sins of this country, which is slavery? Are we going to name that cotton was a commodity that was funded by stolen labor? Are we going to name that white gold was riches for some, but violence, death, rape, and torture for others? 
History will ask, where were we after Charlottesville? This is our moment. We can be an example. We can be leaders in the field. We're smart enough to do it, but are we brave enough? Who are we, Mississippi Museum of Art? How we respond will answer that question. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, so you were in this, can I call it, is it fair to call it a, it was a moment of challenge. And, and you wanted to rise to the challenge? Well, I, you know, I think it was a, if we were reflecting, you know, mm -hmm. I think it was a moment of, what do we do about this? Because we had had exhibitions about um, really traumatic events in Mississippi, about Magra Evers' assassination, about Freedom Summer when three civil rights workers were brutally murdered. So we had, and we had combined those exhibitions with programs before. So this was, this was not, it wasn't a, a clear change in direction for us. What it was, was an opportunity to acknowledge that the economy that was created by the founders of this country and yet before them, the, the English royalty and, and others who needed a, a commodity for their textile mills and found a way to do it at a very affordable and profitable way, the way that they kind of used the Deep South to provide that, um, we were part of that whole system. And so how do we talk about that in a way that acknowledges responsibility, power, torture, um, deprivation, um, and all of those things. Um, how do we talk about all of that in an art space? Because art appeals to a different part of one's being than a history museum might. Um, so for me, it was an opportunity. And when Monique said these things, I thought, this is not a PR problem or a potential PR problem. This is an opportunity to provide something really deeply meaningful, potentially healing for people if we do it the right way. So what is the right way? How do we start thinking about it and acting about it now before the exhibition gets here? so that we can maximize this opportunity to do something that matters in our community. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I heard you say that you did was train the staff. Yes. Can you, either one of you, talk a little bit about what that training was? Well, for me, Monique can talk about the process because she's the expert on that. The reason I wanted to do it was because we talked about wanting to, our visitors to have intimate conversations with people who are different from them about race and equity. And I knew that most of the people who work at the museum are curators or educators or art handlers or marketing professionals or accountants. They didn't come from a background of social justice training and conversation. And so for us to have any integrity at all about wanting our visitors to have difficult conversations, we had to know what that was like. 
and we had to be prepared to facilitate that. And so that's when you know Monique's expertise came in handy, and she brought several different opportunities to us. So we connected with the William Winter Institute, who uses the story circle process as a way to build trust among groups and people and often different demographics to begin you to see kind of values of shared humanity. And even though when you think of a story circle, you think it's a really simple tool, but as you experienced yesterday in the session, if you construct a question really well, then people make themselves open and vulnerable relatively quickly in the space. And the power of the circle is that it's a very, it's one of the oldest forms of gathering people. It's a democratic space, and everybody has the same amount of time to share their story. So it evens the playing field, even when you're in with staff and senior leadership, so people don't necessarily have those same power dynamics that play out in other situations. And it's just based on tell me a story about when you felt welcome was the prompt that we used yesterday. And I, I'm just always continually surprised about how a simple question really has complex layers and meaning for some people. And they said that in just resulting from the conversation yesterday, that they shared things or they thought about things that they had never thought about before. I mean, that's a secret sauce for me. I, I just, it's energizing for me to see people connect or to see the light bulb in people's minds go off about, oh, I never thought about it that way before. And that's the power of art, to have these transformative moments that don't often come in like a big lightning bolt moment, but just come in tiny, imperceptible shifts in the way that you think about things and you connect in a conversation around an art object. And one thing makes you see the whole world in a different way. And that's that's what art has the power to do, and that's what we're hoping to explore those issues through exhibits and programming in CAPE, which is the Center for Art and Public Exchange. I mean, I can give you feedback. I, I was in that session, and uh, you divided us up into teams, and I was in story circle number two, and I can report back. I don't want to divulge anybody's story, but we had tears in our story circle. And I personally was amazed at how bonded I felt with the people in that circle who were basically strangers. And that's the magic of it because they weren't all people like you, I'm sure. No, they were no. very different. And it, once that happens, and you have very different people share very different experiences, but it's at that level, you your heart expands, your imagination expands, your soul expands in a way that you will never judge them based on the color of their skin or their background again because you know part of their soul. Yeah. Another thing that, that struck me about something that you said about the preparation that was provided to the staff and if I'm wrong, feel free to correct me, but you did say that the staff were given a history lesson based in facts. Yes, I, you know, we, we live in a time where people have a complicated relationship with facts and truths. And so I think it's, and our public school system does 
our citizens a disservice in not teaching the real histories or histories that highlight people who have been disenfranchised, highlight their narratives. So I thought it was really important that everybody have similar grounding in facts, that they understand that when we say terms and definitions, that this is what we're talking about, because words are so important. Words have meaning, words really matter. And especially when you're talking about something as complicated and as complex as race and identity and gender, we really need to have a common understanding. Um, and so that part of it was crucial, I think, for the staff to understand. And now we continue those conversations and we're able to be more open with each other, and then we're able to model that with our visitors. Um, so it's really important. I was so glad Betsy agreed to make the investment of resources for us to do that, because we wouldn't be where we are now without having that those shared experiences. Another thing that we were all talking about was work that you did out in the community in advance of the installation with community groups. And I was wondering if one of you would like to talk about that. Well, we, we did a variety of, we held a variety of meetings. Some were with individuals who represented constituencies that we knew would have a connection to the idea of cotton, so the NAACP, some university, the HBCU administrations. We also went up into the Delta and had a meeting there with a diverse group of people who actually descend from the place where the cotton was most important in Mississippi and so but also a place that now is living with with a really devastating legacy of slavery and disenfranchisement. And so, yeah, we just, we said, this is what's happening. We've got this exhibit, and let me tell you right now, a, a white man was the artist of this exhibit. He chose the title White Gold. We do not have the power to change that, even though we understand the baggage that that metaphor brings with it. So we want to talk to you about it, we, and we, we brought the artist in. The artist went to several of those meetings and had conversations with people as well and talked about his understanding of the complexity of it, his inspiration for the exhibition, the fact that he had his father was friends with Martin Luther King, and he has a complicated relationship with race as well. So they, they were some of the conversations were difficult. But we had them so when the exhibition came, it would it would have been hard for people to say they didn't know what it was about or that it was gonna come. But it, you had some different conversations. Yeah, I think my I was really concerned about the uh, visitor experience coming out of the museum. So our education team did a lot of work on mining quilt I mean quotes during the reconstruction phase or actually at different points in history and for me that was really pivotal in as an intervention in getting people to process and think about it and to also show that our commitment to being caretakers of the visitor experience 
I think was really important. And then we created a reflection space with books and a Mississippi playlist and journals so people could kind of express what they were going through, what they were feeling. So all of those things were really intentional and showed that we knew that we were had responsibility and we were owning it, we were accountable, and we wanted them to be to come out feeling like they were being heard and cared for. What are you gonna do with that information? Or do you not do you know at this point? Um I no, <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do with the, with the thoughts. I mean, I have several ideas, but you know, we also want to be respectful of people's privacy, and it's not something that we said that we would share outwardly. Mm -hmm. I think it's instructive for staff mm -hmm. to look at it and think about it when we're designing other spaces. I think the next iteration of that may be some disclaimer in the reflection space saying that these please know that these prompts or your responses might be used in some upcoming exhibit installation programming. But because we did not disclose that then, I don't think it would be respectful of their privacy to share it. But I certainly read all of them, and I know Monique and, and other the visitor services people did as well. And one lesson I learned was not to underestimate your audience because they got it. You know, they wrote things mm -hmm. in the comment book about, wow, this really brings up the beauty and the pain all mixed together, and that's just, that's what Mississippi is. It's, it's a beautiful place that has endured a lot of pain, continues to have a lot of pain, and, you know, they, they got it. And so I, I think we'll, you know, we will honor that, and not be afraid to bring controversial things to the museum. I don't think we'll ever ignore the sociological, political, economic context in which art that we display was made so that we will we'll dive into those questions, those hard questions, um, and not just have it be about aesthetics. I think we learned that people are hungry for that and they're hungry for multidisciplinary programming. They're hungry for thinkers that are outside of the art world to respond. We had lawyers, the former Secretary of Agriculture, former first African-American congressman elected since Reconstruction, was also one of the lawyers who sued the federal government on behalf of black farmers and so he was in that space talking about the rights of black farmers and how they had been disenfranchised and, and, and to some extent um, seen reparation. Um, so it wasn't just music, although Monique brilliantly had, you know, circles of uh, freedom songs being led by a civil rights worker, um, we had classical music that put to, uh, put to music a poem by an African-American poet. Um, you know, people aren't single-minded and single-focused, and 
um, people who are interested in learning want to learn in all kinds of different ways. And I think we learn to trust that more. And I think also we have, as an institution, have been changed by this process. We now have a community advisory council. And so we have created mechanisms to be in closer touch with the community so they would feel freer to share this information with us. So this is, we're, we are not siloed in a way that we were before. So we have operationalized kind of some of our learnings from this process. We've since then we we had a national artist who had Native American roots in Mississippi come do a community residency with, and we spent a lot of money on um, a residency that just benefited, quote benefited, um, eight people. But they were people in the LGBTQ community who had their own trauma and. They ended with a show, a drag show in a gay nightclub, and mm -hmm. the, the result was a video that we showed our public. And I don't, I don't know that we would have done that five or ten years ago, but we did it, and it was well received, and there was compassion evidenced um, among the people who, who would be surprised to know they could respond that way. I mean, one of the interesting things about that moment and kind of the symposium, the mini symposium that happened after that, is an audience member said after hearing the um, resident's stories that, how can we treat you better? How can we advocate for you? And this was after they experienced the video and heard the artists and participants talk. I mean, and really that's what we want people to think about. Like, how do we treat each other better? And so, do either of you personally have any epiphanies through this process? I, I think my epiphany is, I, I think I have a couple. One is to continue to be brave because saying what I said in the staff meeting was really hard for me. I was not in a position of leadership at the time. Betsy and I didn't really know each other that well. I mean, we were, you know, cordial in a professional relationship, but it, it was a real risk in being a person of color in a, in a museum. You really, or any environment, when you express something that's potentially disruptive because of my programming, I feel like I'm, my job might potentially be at risk. And so even though my mind knew that wasn't the case, my heart, my, the reptilian brain in me was thinking of survival. But that side of me, but my ancestors were tapping me on the shoulder and saying, if you don't say it, I won't ever let you sleep. <laughs> and so I felt compelled to do it. But I also knew that Betsy was a, so I would never want to come with a problem without a potential solution. And so I knew that she was committed enough to the mission of the museum to hear that this was a respectful offering mm -hmm. and that I was prepared to help solve it. Or I wanted to be part of making us better. Yeah, and I, I, I think that, you know, as the director of the museum, I've learned a lot about trusting my colleagues and the wisdom that each person brings and I don't feel the need to have all the answers anymore. And I think the other epiphany that I had 
I, or it's, you know, it's little mini epiphanies along the way. But it is that our community deserves a place to have these conversations and that the climate around our nation and in, in Europe and in Africa and in the Middle East, I mean, we're just, we're regressing in terms of our abilities to accept and include and respect each other and it like it's too urgent now not to do this it's just it's you know the, oh what were those matrices you used to have to classify things as urgent or important or right. yeah mm -hmm. so it's it's urgent and it's important mm -hmm. and i just i don't have time not to do it um just to to be that kind of place where um, we have these conversations, where we broaden the understanding that artists speak to us in a way that can change our lives and do it in ways that can ripple out to the community. And I do believe that, I mean, I believe that um, if uh, we can model how this happens and what this looks like in this institution that we can really be leaders and examples in the field about how to do this work in uh, institutions like museums which are really based in colonialism and if we can disrupt that and model it into or evolve into some place community gathering place where people have civil conversations about complicated issues I mean what, what's better than that? Yeah. yeah, if you can do it in Mississippi, you can probably that's, do it anywhere. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't tell you yet that I'm going to be in Jackson, Mississippi next month. Wow. For the Art Place Summit oh, and, right. and the Rural Generation right. Summit. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to have to stop by the museum. Well, there's I think a it's been at the museum during the Art Place Summit. Oh, great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, I can't wait to see it. That's yeah. terrific. Yeah, I'm so glad you'll be there. We're going to have a great exhibition up uh, about all these all issues. Yeah, Blackout. Blackout, which is a show from the National Portrait Gallery that looks at the silhouette art form in 19th century America uh, and contemporary artists who are inspired by that art form, including Carol Walker yeah. and some others. So. It's gonna, we'll have some good things for you to see. Excellent. I look forward to seeing, hopefully, yes. seeing you two again. That would, that would be great. Yeah. All right, thanks again for being here and taking the time out. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you for yeah. the opportunity. You're welcome. You've been listening to Creative Place, produced by the National Consortium for Creative Placemaking. For more information, visit our show page at cpcommunities.org. And follow us on social media, where our handle is at cpcommunities. Bye for now. Bye.